Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about what happens to pregnant women and their children when those women are inmates. State Senator Erica Geis is pushing to change policies that often separate mothers who give birth behind bars. Is there a better way to handle that? Then we're going to talk with Coleman Young II, son of the city's longest serving mayor who just won his own term on the Detroit City Council. We'll talk about his ideas for taking office. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. A little later in the program, we are going to have a conversation with Coleman Young II, a newly elected at-large member of the Detroit City Council. He's a former state senator from the east side here in Detroit, and of course the son of Coleman Young, the long-serving mayor of the city of Detroit. Uh, we're going to talk with Coleman Young II about his plans for his term in office as a Detroit city council member. And we're going to talk specifically about an idea he has that I think is pretty interesting. He would like the city of Detroit to institute some form of universal basic income, which is an idea that some cities are toying with right now. It is the kind of idea that could radically change the economic picture for Detroiters. We're going to hear why he thinks it's time for us to consider that here in the city of Detroit and how he might come up with the money. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. It'll get started at about half past the hour. But first, I think most of us would probably agree that pregnant and postpartum mothers should have as much opportunity as possible to give birth in an environment that's healthy and accommodating for both mother and child. And I think we'd agree that mothers should have time to bond with their children immediately after birth. But what happens when those mothers also happen to be inmates? Until recently, pregnant and postpartum prisoners were not formally guaranteed any of the things that I was just talking about. But Governor Whitmer's administration recently handed down a new policy directive that allows inmates to develop a birth plan in consultation with healthcare staff and work with a doula. It also limits when inmates can be restrained and allows them to spend more time with their babies after giving birth. The policy comes after State Senator Erica Geis introduced bills last year, also meant to address these issues. Geis is a Democrat from Taylor who represents the 6th State Senate District, and she joins us now to talk about this issue and these new policies meant to address it. Uh, State Senator Erica Geis, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be here with you. So let's start with you giving us some examples of stories that you've heard about how pregnant and postpartum inmates and their babies have been treated here in Michigan in the past. Yeah, I think um, one of the stories that uh, listeners might be most familiar with um, is the experience that Sawatu Salama Ra had um, back in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when we first uh, started working on this legislation, in fact, and um, was already ended up being sent to our only um, women's prison, uh, which is uh, Women's Huron Valley. And um, the the experiences that, that she had there um, and Sawachi was already uh, an activist, uh, a community organizer and an activist um, for many other um, 
issues around um, addressing Mm -hmm. inequities and injustice. Um, So she had an external support system that many don't have. Um, And so, you know, learning about the experiences that she was, um, that that she had, where she was not afforded adequate nutrition, where there were issues around um, shackling, uh, and I don't want to tell her story. Um, she should tell her story, but I, I know it's something that has been multiple times has been reported about uh, about her experiences. Um, she is uh, no longer with uh, women with women's at Women's Huron Valley, um, and she was very instrumental in the Sawatu Freedom Team. Were very instrumental um, in helping really craft this legislation, not well this policy directive, but what was originally going to be. Uh, legislation uh, that, as you said, we had introduced last year. And even as recently as just before um, this policy directive was announced, um, you know, there were women who are inmates who are expecting, um, who were still receiving similar treatment to what Suato experienced. Mm. Um, and this is an issue not just here in Michigan. It is a national issue um, in our our state prisons as well as jails, as well as um, federal prisons. Um, this only addresses this one facility here in the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, it, it really should be more encompassing to including jails. And I think um, listeners might also recall from several years ago, uh, uh, an, an expecting a, a pregnant woman um, at a Macomb County jail who um, had a, a horrific experience, uh, to say the least. Um, and I'm trying to be sensitive to to their experiences as well as to you know some of the the horrors and trauma that they experienced um, by not being. Uh, as specific about them on the sure. radio. Yeah. So so I I want to go back also to the time when you introduced bills to try to change these policies uh, and talk about the reaction to those bills, the response to those bills, and how we ended up with the Whitmer administration taking action that it has the ability to take rather than the legislature, um, the legislature acting. What what happened? So we introduced the bills. Um, there were originally two bills: uh, Senate Bill eight thirty and Senate Bill eight thirty one um, that were tie barred. Um, Senate Bill eight thirty was pretty much the language that's in the new policy directive, mm-hmm. um, and then Senate Bill eight thirty one was an oversight uh, commission that would be would ex- would examine the the policies and the practices um, at Women's Huron Valley specifically um, and have a a space for additional uh, oversight there, um, especially for the the loved ones and family members of the of the inmates who are incarcerated. Um, We had to we had a hearing actually we had two hearings um, last term in the Judiciary Committee. Um, we were a bit stymied by the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, the and and then timing. Uh, the bills passed out of committee um, and passed out of the chamber, but we didn't weren't able to to get it through the house side. Um, we worked with an amazing group, of, an amazing coalition of healthcare workers of. Of activists, uh, I mentioned earlier the Swatu Freedom Team, of uh, the American um, uh, Friends uh, Society that's been doing um, active work with around um, incarceration and around the human dignity of inmates, um, and with um, the Prison Doula uh, Project, and uh, you know a lot of we had a lot of input. Um, from the from the public, we also worked with the department um, because this is affecting a state department mm-hmm. um, for addressing the issues of what is ideal and what we really need to see uh, in terms of um, 
protecting the infants of the uh, pregnant incarcerated people, but also um, understanding or trying to understand um, where they where they were coming from in terms of their um, their their role in um, managing corrections and. It wasn't always an easy conversation. <laughs> Some of the conversations were very, very difficult because we, the goal was to make sure that um, the prisoners were still treated with dignity and respect, that they would have a healthy pregnancy, that they would um, have those uh, various medical and um, psychological needs met um in such a way that was not an additional punishment um or punishing their child their 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 child did not need to was not serving a sentence mm-hmm. um and a lot of the the language that is in the the new policy directive um and in the original bill echoes um the this new shift in understanding uh, the the need for protecting and preserving the humanity and dignity of these pregnant prisoners mm-hmm. um, that comes from the um, from ACOG and comes from the American Psychological Association that comes from uh, the the National Institute for Corrections on how pregnant and postpartum prisoners should be um, should be treated. Um, and other organizations such as Black Mamas Matter Alliance um, in terms of how do you improve maternal health and specifically Black maternal health um, in these very uh, specific types of environments. Yeah. So so um, I, I want to get our callers going here in this conversation. I'm talking with State Senator Erica Geis. She's a Democrat from Taylor who represents the 6th State Senate District. We're talking about state changes in policies for pregnant and postpartum inmates. Uh, give us a call and let us know if you think pregnant and postpartum inmates should have more rights when it comes to giving birth and the important bonding that happens with them and their children after birth. What's your reaction when you hear that up until recently, pregnant and postpartum prisoners weren't formally protected against being restrained during labor or having their babies taken from them right after birth? Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Also, uh, of course, we'd love to hear from anyone who has had experience with this issue. Are you somebody who was incarcerated while you were pregnant? Did you give birth while you were incarcerated? Call and tell us what that experience was like, how uh, authorities inside the jail or prison where you were located handled uh, these issues. Also, give us a call if uh, you're, uh, you have a relative or a friend who has had uh, these experiences and maybe the frustrations of being restrained during labor and separated uh, after after giving birth from the child that you just gave birth to. Uh, we would love to hear how these stories play out in your lives in practical terms. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Senator Geis, I want to talk a little more practically about the change that is being affected in this this one prison. Uh, What what are things supposed to look like uh, now? What what experience are we now expecting women in this situation to actually have? Well, now we're expecting that um, if uh, an inmate is pregnant, that they will be able to uh, have a birth plan um, that is unique 
to their needs. Everyone is still um, an, ind an individual, even if they are incarcerated. And so um, being able to, to work with a doula um, and work with um, healthcare uh, workers, be able to consult with them um, and have that, that autonomy respected um, and make and be part of those healthcare decisions related to their pregnancy. Um, they will that that is something that they will all have the the ability to do. Um, they'll be able to have a support person. Um, dot, uh, the Department of Corrections has allowed it, but it hasn't been consistent. Um, they'll be able, and that support person will be in addition to the doula. Um, so not just the doula um, who can be present uh, with them at their throughout their pregnancy care and postpartum care, um, but um, that person will be able to be present at the hospital mm -hmm. as well as support her, her and the baby. Um, the limits on restraints, we worked really hard on this language. Um, uh, what is publicly called an anti-shackling measure, and I know the Department of Corrections hates it when we use that term, um, but that is, that is really, um, that gets to the the crux of not of them not using um, uh, restraints that are in front of the, uh, in front of the belly or touching the belly. Not using leg restraints, um, using the least restrictive restraints um, if restraints are necessary. Mm. Um, the the um, the, there'll be visitation allowed between the postpartum prisoner and their newborns, um, and they'll be able to have immediate um, contact with their newborn as well, um, regardless of whether of how they deliver, whether it's vaginally or by cesarean. Um, uh, MDOC is supposed to be um, developing the training. That's why it wasn't immediately implemented. Mm -hmm. um, it goes into effect officially later this month. Um, and um, it's also uh, making sure that the, the prisoners will have access to um, prenatal vitamins, the you know type of um, nutri nutrition that you need as a, as a pregnant person. Um, and those are some of the highlights. They'll, they'll also be able to initiate breastfeeding um, if, the, if that is what the pregnant prisoner has, has decided they want to do. We, we don't have a, a mechanism, doesn't go as far as I would have liked it, um, to be able to allow, um, to allow them to, uh, to still nurse their infant. Um, but it, they will be able to allow um, for expression um, of their milk. And so that when they're at their release time, uh, they aren't um, disrupting uh, breastfeeding for their, or the, the ability to breastfeed for, for mm -hmm. their child. Mm -hmm. so, so before uh, we take a break, I, I want to talk about what you think this will do for outcomes. And when we talk about outcomes in, in this context, of course, I, I don't know how much data there is uh, about what the outcomes looked like before, in other words, for, for pregnant and postpartum inmates. But I would imagine that the expectation is that things will go better. They will end up in better places uh, because there is a more humane policy in, in place. Talk to me about what the prognosis is for that, what some of the expectations might look like for the the effect of these policy changes. Yeah, I think that, you know, ideally, yes, we hope and we believe that these types of more humane uh, policy directives will improve outcomes, both for the inmate and the child. Um, the being able to make sure that there is still um, that, that ability to, to bond uh, with their infant, um, being able to, you know, is going to, and, and still have that, that, that contact with them. Um, 
is going to hopefully improve their their ACEs scores. That so the ask the adverse childhood experience uh, experiences uh, scores and um, you know when we see fewer adverse childhood experiences, the you know that in itself leads to um, better outcomes for the child. It helps that policies like this, laws like this, others because other states have similar similar policies. Um, it helps reduce uh, recidivism um, for the the inmates. Um, it also um, ends up having a, a much more that having an incarcerated parent already is uh, uh, an adverse childhood experience. However, by trying to not disrupt um, that that bond between the parent and the child can help mitigate that that experience. And I think that when we are using that, you know, they're they're inside because of the you know the, the whichever law it was that was broken that. A, a judge determined that was the sentence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I'm, I don't think any of our MCLs uh, say that the the punishment uh, for for violating a law um, is including includes creating additional trauma. And so, by being much more humane and having a much more humane response to people who are already in a um in in a state a, a, a physical state um that is already more difficult um is not good for their natal outcomes um and it's also it's it's not good for the system at large either hmm. um being an incarcerated pregnant person as additional risk for their maternal health as well as the infant's health. Um, the, you know, the, the risk for adverse outcomes is higher mm -hmm. for the incarcerated popu pregnant population. Um, and if we are talking about, you know, and I look at it, it holistically, if as a state we're talking about healthy moms and healthy babies that cannot exclude the pregnant population that is incarcerated. Yeah. Okay. State Senator Erica Geis, Democrat from Taylor. It was great to have you here with us to talk about this really important policy change at the state level. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. It's It's been my pleasure chatting with you this morning. And this is just one step. Mm -hmm. um, we still have more work to do, um, but it's a positive step. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing it being implemented correctly um, and seeing um, the data that does show down the pike that the uh, outcomes are improving. That they're getting better. Sure. Okay. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk with newly elected Detroit City Councilman Coleman Young II. We're going to talk about his proposal for a universal basic income for Detroiters and other ideas he has for his new position. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Detroit City Council is going to look really different after the newly elected members take their seats in January. There are nine total seats on Detroit's legislative body, and last week's elections saw victories for six new members. That's two-thirds of the seats on council that will have a new face in them. One of those new members has a familiar name in Detroit politics, and not just because he shares it with his father, 
who was the longest-serving mayor in Detroit history. Coleman Young II is now well-known to Detroit voters after serving 14 years in the state House and Senate, as well as having challenged Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan in his first re-election bid. Last week, he was the top vote-getter for two at-large seats on council, and he won with some pretty big ideas about things that could change Detroiters' lives, hopefully for the better. Coleman Young II joins me now to talk about some of those ideas and what he hopes to accomplish in the next years on Detroit City Council. Coleman, welcome to Detroit Today. Mr. Henderson, always a pleasure to be back with you. Yes, it's always great to, to talk with you. It's been so, a while. It's been a while. It has been a long care. while, I know. So first of all, I have to say congratulations, and I would love to get uh, your reaction to the fact that uh, you not only won a seat on uh, council, but you were the highest vote editor. Well, listen, I, 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 I'm a, I have mixed emotions. It's joy and happiness. Uh, I just want to say to everyone out there who supported me, thank you so much. And even those who didn't, thank you for the opportunity to be able to uh, tell you why I think I was best for city council. Uh, This is as much the people's victory as it is mine. I could not have done it without them. And I also just want to say thank you to the constituency for allowing me to be able to change. After I ran for mayor and lost, there were some things within me that I need to change personally. Hmm not just physically how I looked, but also mentally how I thought. There were some things that I did that I was not particularly proud of. And I just want to thank the community for encouraging me and giving me the space I need to grow and change, to become a better person, and then to vote for me as a top vote getter. I was just tremendously humbled and very thankful for this opportunity, and I will do everything I can to earn your vote and support. Yeah. So, so I, I think that takes a lot of courage to talk about having made a lot of changes, a lot of personal changes after, uh, after losing that, that mayoral election. Uh, do you feel comfortable telling us just a little more about what some of those sure. changes were? Yeah, go ahead. Well, 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 first of all, I mean, listen, I, I don't want to relitigate. Let me say this too. Uh, I, um, Mayor Duggan ran a hell of a race. I have nothing but the utmost respect for him and, and, and what he's done, and congratulations to him and his race. Um, the, what I need to change from my perspective was there was just some things that I was saying, some things that I was doing that I just did not like. Mm. I think that my campaign was just, uh, I, no, it's not just that it was negative. I just thought it was angry. Mm. And I thought that there were some things that just really weren't me. You know, and I kind of allowed myself to get caught up more in being against someone else than being for what I'm about. And this campaign, I wanted to run a more inclusive, a more um, a more thoughtful, a more reasonable. And I also wanted to seek to understand people. Mm-hmm. I needed to be a little bit more open and listening to other people's ideas and being a little bit more um, understanding, seeking to understand. Seeking to, co- co- to cooperate, yeah. collaborate, yeah. to work with people, to advance the city forward. These are things that I think I need to be more open-minded, be more understanding, be more humble, be more reasonable, um, and you know, and really trying to do a better job of just trying to enhance and add value to the lives of which I was serving. I don't think I really did that for men. I think it became more of a tear down, barn burner type of event. I think I kind of got lost in that. Because, you know, when you're running and you got that bunker mentality, you know what I'm saying, Steve? You know, that you against the world mentality. It's so easy to just get stuck on that. Rather it is to really, you can lose sight of why you're there in the first place. And the reason why I'm there is to be a voice for the voiceless, hope for the hopeless, and use power as an instrument to serve the powerless with. Hmm. And I think I lost sight of that. I mean, and, that's why, and, and I I wonder what you felt from reflected back to you from Detroiters as you were out campaigning for this position with with that difference in mind. Did did you get a different response from from people when you talked to them oh, about yeah. your candidacy? Oh yeah, I, I got a much different response. You know, I, I got I got a much different response. Well, first of all, let me say this: I've lost about close to a hundred pounds. Physically. Yes. I, I've seen so, photos. I haven't seen you in person in a long time, but I've seen photos, and you look yeah. quite different. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for noticing that. <laughs> you, know, it, you know, so that was one of the first things that people would notice just off the bat. And then I think when I started running a more inclusive, more inspirational, more positive, a more, you know, collaborative um, campaign, I think people started noticing that as well. And we started really focusing more about what we could do for the constituency and what my vision was for the city and being more inclusive in terms of what I was trying to do. I think people really resonated towards that leadership. And yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why I'm fortunate enough to be in the position along with divine intervention. I mean, I think this is nothing short of a miracle that I could go from four years ago and 100 pounds ago, you know, losing, you know, pretty, you know, decisively mm -hmm. to coming back now and being the number one vote getter. I mean, it's just nothing short of miraculous. And I'm just thankful to be in this position and thankful to the citizens of Detroit for putting me in it. Mm -hmm. I'm talking with uh, Coleman Young II. He is a newly elected at-large member of the Detroit City Council. He's a former state senator and, of course, is the son of the city's longest-serving mayor. We're talking about his campaign for city council. We're talking in a little bit about some of the ideas he has for policy changes here in the city of Detroit. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What questions do you have for Detroit City Council member-elect Coleman Young? Uh, what do you think of some of his ideas? Uh, what do you think about the relationship between Detroit City Council and Mayor Mike Duggan, someone else who was uh, also re-elected last week uh, to a third term as the city's mayor. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can try to include you uh, in the show that way. So, uh, Coleman, I want to talk about one of the m most intriguing ideas that uh, that you have for policy here in Detroit. You've said you want to try out the idea of automatic monthly payments to Detroit residents, uh, better known or commonly known as universal basic income. We've got some cities across the country that are experimenting with that as well. But uh, tell us why you think it's time for Detroit to have a go at this and how you think it would work. Well, the reason why I wanted to um, have Detroit do this because we I think next to Cleveland, we have the highest poverty rate is in big cities in the out of big cities in the country, in the nation. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that this would be a good way in order to alleviate that as a supplement, not as a panacea, but as a supplement to other policies in a more holistic approach. Um, I wanted to mirror and do the same thing that they did in Stockton, California with Mayor Michael Tubbs, mm -hmm. where as a pilot program, he had um, he had 500 people that no he had 125 people that got 500 dollars a month for 18 months. Now I'm open to using you know um, um, whether it be funds that we have in our budget or whether it be funds we're getting from the federal government in terms of the American Rescue Plan. I think it would probably have to wait till next year because that's when we get the next uh, 413 million dollars. Um, um, in May of, 20, uh, May of 2022, so next year, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think that money that we have right now is like, you can do an emergency appropriation, but that's not something I really want to go toward. But I also want to work with our um, foundation community, our mission finance community, um, as well as our nonprofit community, be able to have the funds like they did in Stockton, California. That was the original plan that I wanted to do. But I wanted in a pilot program first. We want to, based on need, so the areas that have the highest poverty, we want to try it in those communities first, and then I want to gradually see if we can phase it in throughout the entire city over time. I don't think it's something that we could do just throughout the entire city because of the finances, mm -hmm. but also because you don't want to assume that, you know, the go-go years are going to last forever, um, you know, in terms of having money and things of that nature. So I definitely want to see that the numbers that I've seen in other cities have been positive, so I think that this is something that will be good in the city of Detroit as well as a tool, as one of the tools to alleviate poverty. And so that's why I want to do it. Hmm. So so the, the idea of uh, focusing on an issue like this, I think, is really reflective of some of the themes that, that you had, not only in the campaign for council, but that you have talked about for a long time. And that is 
how do we leverage the power of government to 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 build opportunity for people in one of the poorest cities uh, in, in the country? And, you know, we can argue about who is the poorest. I mean, I see lots of statistics about one place being poorer than another by certain measures. Right. But, but by any measure, you know, we, we have a, a profound problem with uh, with lack of economic opportunity here. Um, talk about how this fits into that bigger vision, though, that you have of focusing the work on government uh, on the people who don't have that opportunity, who are cut off from it. Well, I think that's why this is, first of all, guaranteed income is one part of it. Then the other part of it that I really would like to do is I think we need to do a better job of investing more in um, <clears throat> workforce development, working with our unions, uh, in terms of making sure that they get the job training that they that they need in order to participate in these construction jobs that we have. I think that's something that's very important, as well as reforming uh, the community benefits agreement so it can be stronger in terms of including more Detroiters in that process. I would also like to not take over, but partner, work with um, DPS as well, and work with our, you know, partner with Grow Detroit Young Talent in order to make sure that when we have the skills that the kids have the skills they need, so when these new tech industries are coming into the town, we can have a feeder program where they can get the skills they need from the uh, Go Detroit Young Talent. They can get the skills they need for workforce development at Detroit. It's one of the Solutions Corporation, you know, through a partnership with DPS. And then from there, they can be able to work out of high school um, into these programs, kind of like, uh, kind of like um, what they had in Chicago with IBM and Chicago Public Schools. I like to see something as a pilot based on that with terms of a partnership, reaching out and engaging uh, with DPS. I think that's something that's very important. Um, I also think that what I would like to see in terms of making sure that we have more Detroiters that are available is that we do a better job of also having more business incubators as well, uh, having targeted business development program mm -hmm. because over 50%, uh, I think it's 54%, of the jobs in Detroit come for small business. And I think we need to do a better job of investing more in small business, of working with our, you know, whether it be our, um, our financial institutions, whether it be uh, community development corporations, or community development financial institutions, or credit unions. I think we want to be able to do more in terms of micro lending. And I think that we're going to have to do, we're going to have some reform to talk about uh, are there ways in which we can get around credit checks? That's one of the major reasons why people are denied, you know, um, uh, denied loans for housing and things of that nature. And so I think that's something that we really want to do and help people be able to get the business plans they need as well as the capital mm -hmm. so they can start their own small businesses. You know, and I think that's something that's very important and I want to work with overall. So we have an economic development aspect. And also, I think that we have a major problem with housing. I think over there was a report from the University of Michigan, over 30,000 people live in substandard housing. And so I think what I would like to do is I'd like to make sure that if we have funds that are being used by HUD, that we enforce Section 3, which says that whatever projects are built with HUD money, the jobs have to go to people who are in the community. So I think that's another way we mm -hmm. can put people back to work and include Detroiters um, as well. And so I think those are things that are very important in terms of inclusiveness, in terms of jobs, opportunities, laws that do that, not just the community development agreement, but also, excuse me, business agreement, excuse me, but also from the developers agreement as well. And I think if we use these tools overall, I think we can put people to work to be more inclusive in terms of dealing with the issue of poverty. And we also going to have to deal with the issue of crime as well. Let, let me just put it to you this, because I could talk to you about this for a long time, mm -hmm. but we, I, I'm going to have a lot of work. <laughs> to do when I get in. Yeah. But, but let me just say this, too, before, before I end. Uh, Mr. Henderson, when I was running for mayor, there were some things that you wrote in the paper, and I just wanted to say thank you because I read a lot of it, and it helped me change tremendously how I think things, how I see things, how I analyze things. It made me work harder. It made me a better person. It made me a better um it made me a better politician. And so I just want to say thank you, and I appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I mean, I've known you a long time, and I've always thought uh, that, first of all, you're just a fundamentally decent person and somebody who really does want to leverage public service for the the, the betterment of, of the people of, of the city. And so I was always 
uh, trying to encourage uh, encourage those better angels, right? Uh, and encourage yeah. who I who I who I know you to be. And I I, I think uh, the 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 arc of of change and progress over the time that you've been in uh, in public life is is pretty pretty remarkable. Um, so okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with uh, Coleman Young II, one of the newly elected members of the city council. We're going to talk about the relationship between council and Mayor Mike Duggan, who was also just reelected to a third term. We want to hear from you as well on the phones and on social media. What questions do you have for Coleman Young II? Maybe about his idea for a universal basic income in the city or the other idea is to kind of attack poverty in Detroit. As always, the number here in the, on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter and put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Coleman Young II. He's the newly elected at-large member, one of the two newly elected at-large members of the Detroit City Council. He's a former state senator from the east side here in Detroit and, of course, uh, the son of former mayor Coleman Young. We're talking about his ideas for the next four years for that he will be a Detroit City Councilman, uh, the things he wants to focus on here in our city. As always, we want to hear from you as well. What do you think uh, of the new council? Six new members of our Detroit City Council who will be in office in, in January. What are you expecting from them in terms of progress here in the city and in terms of the relationship with uh, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, who was also reelected to a third term last week. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I do want to get to callers, uh, Coleman, but I first want to ask you about the relationship between City Council and Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. I saw a lot of people uh, last week after the elections talking about this new slate of uh, of council members and how they will challenge Mike Duggan, uh, maybe a little more than the council that we had before. Uh, I, I wonder what you make of the relationship and the posture that you would like the council to take with regard to the mayor and, and his agenda. Well, listen, I think that if it's something that's going to move the city forward, um, I support it. You know, if he's doing something I think that's best for my constituency, I'm going to support him. If he's doing something I think that's against the people who elected me, I'm going to fight like hell to defend uh, the, uh, the will of the people who voted for me. Uh, you know, it's kind of like they say, you know, the ears of a leader must ring with the voices of the people. As a great president once said, I think that's what we want to do. I think we can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, but I think that we need to take a professional tone in terms of how we do things. And I think that uh, in the unfortunate climate that we're in with the investigations involving uh, corruption, I think that city council really needs to, I think the, the voters spoke clearly, first of all, that corruption will not be tolerated mm -hmm. in any circumstance. But that secondly, I think we need to get some wins on the board. We need to roll our sleeves up and we need to get to work. And I think it, it shouldn't be so much about who's for or who's against someone, but what's best for the city and what's best for the citizens and what's going to move the city forward. So uh, I also want to give you a chance to talk specifically about your relationship with, with Mayor Mike Duggan, who, as we were talking earlier, you challenged uh, to, to, to be mayor. Uh, we had him on just before the election, and he actually had pretty good things to say about you and about that challenge. He, he, he gave you credit for some of the ideas that he has 
uh, he's tried to pursue as as mayor. W- what do you what do you make of the relationship just between the two of you uh, going into going into this this new era? Well, so I think it's good. I think we've had a good relationship. I think that he's been more than gracious uh, in terms of willing to sit down and willing. To, we, we've had conversations in the past. Uh, you know, I think it really is a testament to him and his leadership. Uh, and I, I respect him tremendously. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, it, look, it was a hard race, and I gave it the best of what I had, and, and he won. And he's the people's choice, and I respect that, and I understand that. And I'm willing to work with him. And, uh, you know, I, and, and I'm the type of person that knows how to cut deals without sacrificing my ideals. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm definitely looking, looking forward to working with him and having a very professional relationship. And he's been very cordial. He's been very respectful. And he's and he's been very honest and open with me, and I think that's a testament to him and his character. Yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Christopher in Detroit. Christopher, what's on your mind? Um, hello, I would mm-hmm. I would like uh, uh, Coleman Young Jr. to consider my proposal for a trust back UBI, which gives trust individualized trust to every uh, uh, firm, every household and every institution in Detroit um, so that it is based on the market and that it is sustainable. I have sent my plan to uh, Mayor Duggan in 2017 when I won the STEAM Challenge at Wayne State for its this sustainability mm-hmm. program um, <clears throat> of trust back to you. Yeah, so so Christopher, I I think you and I have talked about this idea before on this. I think you've called before and and brought this up and I I think it's a really interesting idea. I want to encourage you of course to send it to uh to our newly elected uh, council member so he can he can see it as well. But 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 Coleman, talk a little about this idea of I think what Christopher is talking about is way more of an investment driven uh, uh, support for for Detroiters. That's uh, a little different than just monthly checks. It's something that that you would be able to count on longer term. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's the, that's. I mean, no, no I'm going to be honest. I was going to be. I'm going to be more partial to you know the way I want to do it. But <laughs> I definitely want to. Um, I definitely am interested and want to take you know and want to listen to all ideas. And I hope you can send it to me. Send it to me, and uh, this is my email address. Uh, Coleman Young for Detroit. That's Coleman Young, the number four, Detroit at gmail.com. So Coleman Young, the number four, Detroit at gmail.com. And let me take a look at it. Because that's definitely something that's more, that's interesting. I think that would be kind of like a interest-bearing account, I think, or something of that nature is what he's referring to. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think that's, that's definitely something I would, you know, be interested in looking at as well. Because I think that if we don't have enough money, well, we get in a situation where we don't have the money to be able to finance it, you know, uh, UBI, I think that definitely would be a good alternative. Hmm. Uh, again, Christopher, really appreciate the call and, uh, again, the, the really interesting idea. Let's go to Joanne in Detroit. Joanne, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, good morning. Thanks hey, for taking my call. Can yeah, you hear me? I can. Go ahead. Hey, Joanne. Yeah, hi, Coleman, and congratulations. Hey. You look great. You're an inspiration for people to to be to, to, to be healthy. You look great. I'm excited about that. And um, I am hoping that you will be a true civil rights leader on this city council. You know, I hear a lot of discussion about inclusion. Hmm. and But but in, in my situation, or, or where I live in the North End, um, that didn't really happen with the, when this city secretly planned a big development called North End Landing. I call it North End Loathing. <laughs> it was planned by Vanguard uh, Community Development Corporation, and the executive director hand-selected a few people from the community, had them sign non-disclosure agreements, which means they couldn't tell us what they were talking about, and then they planned this in secret for three years, and when they rolled it out to tell us, they called that community engagement. Mm. Then the council voted 8-0 to zero for this, and that is not inclusive community planning. It's Mm. disrespectful of the residents. It's showing favoritism and it looks like a whole lot of favoritism was being showed to Bishop Edgar Van, who wouldn't even take my phone call about their refusal to include me. And I live on the block where most of this would be. 
So, so Joanne, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to cut you off, but, but I do want to give uh, Coleman Young a chance to, to answer, and we're running out of time. Uh, I, I hear a lot of these kinds of uh, issues from Detroiters who live in neighborhoods where they don't feel like they have as much agency as they should over what the future is going to look like. There are lots of places in the city that are changing, some for the better, maybe some not for the better of the people who live in those in those areas. What's what's your take uh, on how to change that, Coleman? Well, I definitely think that we need to engage the community more. I think we need to be high-tech and high-touch. I think we need to not only work with in terms of the social media aspects, but we also need to actually go out there and let people know, knock on doors, talk to people, uh, work with our city departments to do a better job of engaging and informing people of what's going on, educating people about what's happening in the city of Detroit. And I saw... I understand exactly what she's saying. I, I you know, I, I know uh, Andrew Bishop Vance, so I mean that that's not the that's not the man who I know. So I think it's really unfortunate that you know she had that experience and the North End had that experience because I'm I've represented the North End as a state rep and state senator for a very long time. Right. So I think I did. So I know I'm going to do everything within my power if they have a development like that going on that we encourage that we. Um, educate and we inform and use all the available powers within us to let people know what's going on. And I also think that with community benefits agreements, that's why it's important that we have legally binding agreements as well so that people will actually be engaged in this. And I also think and if we can't do that, then I think at least we need to have um, more, uh, we need to include uh, stronger ways to engage the public um, in the developer's agreement so that people will at least be informed about what's going on around them and how this and how these developments impact. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Coleman Young II, really great to have you here. Uh, promise me that you'll come back after you take office in January and tell us how things are going. <laughs> Most certainly will. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, sir. Absolutely. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about efforts underway here in Michigan to rethink the ways law enforcement interacts with people with mental illness and other social struggles. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. We'll talk again tomorrow.